Therefore, you have no excuse. No excuse. Have you ever felt that way in the classroom? Boy, I am unexcused. Or maybe an unexcused absence from school. Uh, perhaps uh, a test that you felt like, boy, there is no excuse for that grade. I want to imagine perhaps a different type of classroom today where you have to score 100% in order to get a passing grade. Anything under 100% is failure, according to this teacher. The teacher sets up the own rules. They do have one special rule that helps us out. If you're wanting to become a brain surgeon, anyone here a brain surgeon? Okay. No hands. Maybe you're great. Maybe, right? If you could probably YouTube it and take care of that. I want my brain surgeon having gone through quite a bit more than YouTube. Uh, according to, well, let's see, one of their medical license exam, United States USMLE, the Step 2 CK test. In order to become a neurosurgeon, you have to score at least 250 in order to get to that specific um, expertise. And, and 300 is the highest score. That would be perfect. No one has ever scored perfect on that test. And that's good. That's okay. I want that to be hard if they're working on a brain. What if you had a test that you had to actually be in this classroom for 80 years? And if you missed one problem, if you messed up one time, you failed. That would be a hard class to pass. There are two ways that you might look at that and hope for a good passing grade. One would be to look at all of those around you and think, you know what, I'm doing better than that guy. I'm doing better than that young lady. Uh, I'm getting a 45, but they're getting a 41. So hopefully this whole thing's on a curve. You know, and I'll be able to do okay if the teacher examines and recognizes this is too hard, so I need to be judged on the curve. If you take that mindset, what you're doing is actually judging other people and the scores that they might make rather than judging yourself and the score that you need to make. And that is actually the first question that Paul reasons with us in response to what he's considered in chapter 1 that we've walked through this past year. That, that we are all fallen short of the glory of God, but you know what? All of us have sinned. And you know what? According to God, it's 100%. You can't sin once or you fail. The other, I would call this the moralistic view, would be, one would be that maybe this is on the curve and I'm better than all these other people so I should be okay. The other thought, the other logical thought that you might have would be maybe this teacher is going to be kind enough. And I did okay. I mean, I got more right than wrong, and there were a lot of good days that I had. So maybe this teacher will just sleep, sweep all my bad marks under the rug, and I'll be okay. That would be another way to look at it. And that's actually the kind of the logical flow of thought that Paul goes to. What he's going to do is in verses 1 through 3, he's going to deal with a moralist 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, a moralist who thinks, I'm okay on the curve, so I can judge everybody else, and I'm okay. Or, verses 4, 5, and 6, you know, God's going to be kind, and He's going to let me go no matter what. But what we know from the Gospel of the case, and this is what we'll end this way, that the teacher has set up all the rules exactly the way he wants to. And this is the way he's said this. Because as a group of class, we've rebelled against Him, we are all placed under this curse, and He has allowed His Son to come and take the test for us. And He is the only perfect score. And His Son, He has said, is allowed to go to bat for us. And we are allowed, if we will come to an end of ourselves and say, I can't pass this test. He has allowed Jesus Christ's score to be on our, in our, on our line in the grade book. And He has allowed my score to be placed on His and to be punished in my place. And that's the Gospel. But, but the way we think, if we're not careful, as moralistic people is to say, but I didn't earn that. I don't know, know if I like it that way. And that's what that's kind of the flow of thought that we're getting into in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. So, let's just take a minute with this. We're going to kind of find where we've come in Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bible, you can open it up to Romans 1. I wish we could read it all, but I'm just going to kind of go through the three major sections of Romans 1. And you see that on your notes. You can fill in the blanks there. Kind of help you stay alert a little bit. Uh, so we have, we, we hit Romans 1, and now we're starting Romans 2, and there is a big shift from Romans 1 and Romans 2, but it's not necessarily a, an exact cutoff. So there's some, there's, there's some flow from Romans 1 that, that like the conversation actually goes right into Romans 2. So I want to show that to us so that you, you have it in your mind, and I trust you'll be able to remember the rest of your life. Probably not. <laughs> But if you, if you mark it somewhere, you're taking notes, that will help you remember. Okay? So Romans 1, we saw, you know, of course, this is all about the gospel, but verses 1 through 15, we could summarize as gospel aspirations. It's Paul talking about his desire to go to Rome in order to share the gospel with them. And we'll see this is an introduction to a gospel letter. Right? This is a foundational letter in your Bible. Uh, and, and as many have said, the foundation, right? Um, and so Luther would say every person should have this memorized. Um, Piper would say it's the best Christian literature ever written. Right? And, and I agree with those, those things. Now, it, my brain is not agreeing to, to keep it memorized, but it's good to try. At least know what the Bible says here in Romans. Um, I'm going to keep moving. There's a lot to go into there. But the first part is verses 1 to 15. He talks about the author, Paul, the recipients, those of you who are in Rome. And it's so essential because he hasn't been there before. And he needs to share with them his grace groups. All that is having to do with the faith. Uh, and, and so this is why this is an essential letter. It's not that you know, he's been there twice and written three letters like Corinth. No, he's coming there and he wants to make sure they're on the same page. So this is why the, the gospel in all its aspects, our, our view of the world, our view of God, our view of ourselves, our view of politics, 
our view of the faith, our view of the Holy Spirit, our view of uh, everything having to do with Christian life, it just flows from this book. Um, because he's, he's getting ready to go there. Okay? And, and you know, he says the, the author and then the recipients, but there's this gospel paragraph that, that he just starts talking about the gospel because he's talking about going there to share the gospel. So a big chunk of that first section is all about the gospel and ministering one to another in the gospel. Number two here, we have this uh, summary of the gospel letter. Verses 15 and 16 really summarize the whole book. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel, right? So that's the main idea. Preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of what? The gospel. Right, so this is all about the gospel, and this is the, the main summary section of the whole book. He's wanting to preach the gospel to them. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Because it's the power of God for salvation. I can be saved because of the gospel. How does that come? It doesn't come by righteousness. It becomes by faith to everyone who believes. If you're Jewish or you're Gentile. If you believe, you can be saved because of the gospel. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is given. It's revealed. It's made manifest. It's attainable. Not by me earning it, but it's given to me, as we'll see. From faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous one shall live. I can have the righteousness of God based on faith. Now, you might say, well, why would I need that? Why would I need to be saved, right? So that's the first question, big question we get. Why the gospel, Paul? Why do, you, why do you and I need the gospel? That is the next big section. He's showing us our need for the gospel. This is why you need the gospel. Really, all the way from chapter, three, uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 18, to really all the way to 3, verse 20, but, but primarily 3, verse 8. Uh, you have this, the wrath of God on all who are sinful. And then what I'm summarizing is the wrath of God on all who are moral. Right? That's where we start today. The wrath of God who are all on, are sinful. We spent some time with this. And I don't know if you have this. We, I'll put some of these on the back table. But you have this, kind of this MRI, this spiritual MRI, where we can actually check up ourselves and say, where am I falling under the actions that God desires for humanity. But this wrath of God on all who are sinful is made manifest because of general revelation. All who perceive God's general revelation are without excuse. And that last phrase is important. Right? He's, he's, this is where we get to in chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 1, all those who are sinful are without excuse because God has revealed Himself through the weather, through the through nature, through sky, and wow, God is so amazing. Lord, tell me about Yourself. And we want to come to Scripture. Um, but a lot of folks reject that. But general revelation has given everyone a perception of who God is, leaving us without excuse. We saw verses 24-27, to 27, those who reject God's revelation continue in rebellion, and He hands them over to their own really, idol worship. Go ahead. If you refuse to acknowledge me as your God, go ahead and worship cre creation. Say that creation created itself. If you want to try to posit something so silly. And so professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. 
And so God gives them over to that thought. And we saw these three exchanged and given over. God, they exchanged the glory for the grimy, and so God gives them over to impure idolatry. They exchanged the truth for a lie, so God gives them over to sexual immorality. They exchanged natural sexual acts for the unnatural, and God gives them over to pervasive depravity. And that brings us to the third point, right? As you continue on through Romans 1, a society that's handed over is filled with all unrighteousness. And, and so there's these three phrases, being filled with all, full of, and they are. And there's 21, okay, 21 point inspection as he says, okay, how are your shocks? How are your brakes? How are your lights? And we're just saying, wow, he's not just talking about immorality. He's talking about things like gossiping, being proud, being cruel to others, right? So... So we look at these and we're recognizing, okay, a society that's gone totally away from God's revelation is filled with this. But some of these things are actually things that I need to make sure are not in my life as a believer. Okay? Well, then what about those who are moral? What about those who are religious? Right? We just spent all this time looking at the sinfulness around us. And so maybe you feel like, hey man, I did okay on that MRI. That's where he deals with next, okay? And so that's chapter 2. The wrath of God is not just on those who are sinful. The wrath of God is on those who are moral. Those who are moral. If you look at the whole world, honestly, most of the world is not secular. If you add up all the folks who are actually religious and very religious, honestly, if you add up New York City, it's the same thing. People think New York City is so secular. Actually, New York City is very religious, if you add up all the different religious groups. But what this is saying is religiosity never saved a human soul. Being religious, being moral, never saved. It's the same conclusion. They too are what? What does verse 1 say? Without excuse. Yeah. Whether you're very moral or very immoral, you have no excuse. Okay. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Okay, so question one. Why do you misjudge yourself by judging others? Uh, why do you misjudge yourself by judging others? Um, this is that first scenario in the class that, okay, I'm doing pretty good. I, I'm scoring a 65 when I look through those things. And, and when we say that, we're automatically saying, I'm not perfect. And we're automatically looking around and saying, these folks are 85 or 25. And so I'm so glad I'm not in the 25 category. And what he's saying, as soon as you do that, you're actually judging yourself for not being 100% and showing your need for the gospel, even if you're moral. So, verse 1, who is unexcused? Verse 1, he says, therefore you have no excuse. The first idea then is you. I think I have that over there. Okay, yeah. You. 
Um, if you're looking in your Bible, it's really, it's really interesting. This is what I did. Um, if you underline all the they's, I think what I did here is I put a square box around all the they's in chapter 1. It's just all over. Uh, verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him. Verse 22 of Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. And you keep following, every verse is like they, 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 they. And it's almost making us feel like I'm pretty good because it's all of them. They do this, they do this, they do this, they do this. But then look at chapter 2. Therefore what? You. Oh, wait, what are you doing, Paul? Why are you talking to me? That's what he's doing. What he's doing is saying, if you're following his reasoning, you see that everyone around you is sinful, and you might start to think, but I'm okay. And so he's going to take a moment to talk to the moralist. Um, now, in that culture, it probably was, was someone who was very Jewish, but it could be just another religious person. Every culture has its own virtue code. Right? Even the secular society has a very clear virtue code with virtue signaling, and you've got to do all of these things to follow their virtue, or you're not virtuous in their eyes, right? Everyone, even secular society has it. Um, and, and so, even those who totally reject God, do feel like, well, but yeah, but I'm upholding these things, so I'm pretty good. And so he's going to talk to all of us again. All of us are in the same boat. Therefore you. Now this is you singular, so he's probably positing a person who's following his argument and saying, but I'm okay. And, and Paul's good attorney. He just has this legal mindset that he's going to say, I'm not going to let you wiggle out of this. I'm going to bring you to the gospel. You cannot reject it. So the you here is a religious crowd. Someone probably in church here today. In fact, it's probably everyone in church here today. Um, right? You made it to church. And, and if you follow those, right, all the perversity of chapter one, you almost feel like Jonah. Oh man, Nineveh, that place. Yeah, God, burn it to the ground. It doesn't deserve your forgiveness. No, this is for those who are religious as well. So, who, are, who is the you here? He gets a little, little uh, more precise where we'll say it's you the judge. It's not just you, it's you the judge, right? You who judge. It says there, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Right, actually, let's look at that. Look at how many times the word judgment comes up. Um, you who pass judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn. That's actually the same Greek word. You're judging yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose when you're judging others that you're going to escape the judgment of God? And so he's saying, listen, just because you're judging others doesn't go on a curve. It's 100%. It's 100%. Well, what does that look like? I, I think Jesus tells this story, and it's a very good understanding of what this looks like. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence that they were righteous. Huh? I'm 90%, this person says. 
They're confident in their moralistic code. And they scorn everyone else. Looking down on everyone else. He says two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the religious of the religious. This is the Orthodox Jewish person of that day. The other was a despised tax collector. More hated than... than, Sorry, Brother Mitch. You worked for the IRS. No longer retired, but um, he's watching online, no doubt. These folks would have joined with the Romans in order to rob from their Jewish brothers. So they were hated more than than the others. Um, So this tax collector, that's like saying, as you just think of the worst person in your cultural element, that is what he just said. The Pharisee, what does he do? Well, the, the, the Pharisee despised the tax collector. He looks down on the tax collector. And what does he say? I thank you, God, that I am on this part of the curve. I'm not like that guy. I'm not a cheater, a sinner, an adulterer. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of all my income. You see, he's, he's thinking he's doing okay. He thinks that it's going to be graded on the curve. It's the moralist mindset. But the tax collector does what? He realizes he's a sinner. He confesses his sin to God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, right? Oh, God, be merciful for to me. I'm a sinner. He doesn't even feel worthy enough to look up to heaven. Look at what Jesus says. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, went justified. That's our word. Declared to be right with God. Because we are not made right with God based on our works. We are made right with God based on a legal declaration from God Himself based on the grade scale of Jesus' Son. It's got to be placed on your account whether you're moral or immoral. Now we all must repent of our sin like this tax collector did. And live and follow Christ as He saves us. But what justifies us is a legal declaration before God. And so Jesus would really let the Pharisees have it. He said things like this, the prostitutes will get to heaven before you. Imagine that. Go into the Pope. Go into the religious leaders of that day and saying that. Why? Because they were trying to earn their own righteousness. Jesus preached more against moralism than any other sin. I don't know that's the case, but that's what He really got angry at. I didn't add it all up. He preached a lot. Um, Another part, well, we'll get to that in just a minute. I need to keep moving. But if you look at this word judgment, judge, it comes up all over your New Testament. Uh, About 150 times the verb and about, um, about 50 times, I think, the noun. But there's all kinds of different flavors of this verb. It means to declare, right, to, to actually, 115 times is the verb, the noun 50 times. It's to, it's to make a decision about someone else. Right? To, you are the one making the verdict, to pass judgment, to make a judgment. The act of carrying out judicial process or making a judgment. You're the one that's putting on the, coat, the, the, the robe and you're putting the gavel down. That person's not right with God because of what I see there. And so you see it and you judge them. 
And so that fleshes into the idea of judgmental. You just go around, that person's bad, that person's bad, that person's bad, that person's bad. Or you might be saying right now, oh, that person's really judgmental. <laughs> wait, wait a second. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Now, this can be the idea of discernment. I do judge discerningly if I'm out in front of the bagel store and you know, I want to run in there and I don't want to get a you know, ticket, so I'm going to ask someone on the street, hey, would you mind sitting in my car while it's running? I've got to go grab a bagel. Right. That may not be the most discerning thing to do. And I'm making a decision. I'm making a judgment not to do that. Right, so there's a flavor of this word that goes that way that's good. But, but all judgment is passed down to Jesus, the Bible says. All, God says this, all of my judgment where you decide whether someone is right with God or not, that's given to Jesus alone. Beautiful, beautiful word. Um, because the Bible teaches that as we are believing in Jesus, we escape that judgment. Those who accept by faith Jesus as their sacrificial substitute, that student in my place will have eternal life and not come under God's judgment. John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, you're hearing this word today, the word of Jesus from Romans 2, you hear this word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Do you want life? Do you want to be free from the judgment of God? Believe in this gospel message of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the person that right now, throughout all of Queens, is convicting this world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment to come. He's giving a sense of, you know what, there is a God, and I need to be careful how I live my life. That comes from God, the Holy Spirit. God will judge all after death. Hebrews 9.27 Inasmuch as appointed a man wants to die and after that comes judgment. And so do we need. We need someone to be judged in our place. We need to ask Jesus to be judged in our place. Let's move on to the... Uh, it's not moving back here. It's okay. Uh, move on to the next one. You who judge practice the same things, right? You who judge practice the same things. Uh, that is where the judgment comes. That's where the problem comes in. The problem is not necessarily who is judged and who is not judged, but the, the problem is that we're practicing the same things. The moralist has no leg to stand on in God's court. The moralist has no leg to stand on in God's court. Remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have said, Do not commit murder, but I say unto you, Don't hate. You have said, No adultery, but I say to you, No lust. You said, Love your brother, but I say, Love your enemy. Right? He makes all of these things internal, so all of us fall short of the glory of God. No one makes a perfect score. All of us, whether you consider yourself a moralist or consider yourself totally immoral, none of you are right with God based on your own works. All of us need to be excused by someone else. So why are they excused? Why are they unexcused? Because God's righteous judgment falls on all who practice sin, verses two through three. Therefore, and we know that the, the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. 
right? So God's judgment rightly falls on all those who practice those things. Whether you're generally moral or generally immoral, you have fallen short of God's glory. You will not escape the judgment of God. God is unbiased in judgment. None will escape. Verse 2 there, he says, And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon all those who practice such things. Do you suppose this, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think there's an exception? There's going to be a curve and you're going to be better than everyone else because you judge others. No, all of us fall short of the glory of God. When author said it this way, we, we're all like the moon. We all have a dark side. We don't want anyone else to see. But God sees both sides of those. It's really easy to put that false side up here as you come to church. But, but ask your coworkers. Right? Ask your family. They really know what's on the inside. They see a little bit of that. And God sees straight to the heart. The actions that no one else sees. The motivations. The hatred of the heart. We can try to put up a good exterior. But interior, no one has a perfect score. During one of his political campaigns, this is actually a place that we like to go as a family, Oyster Bay, Long Island, to Uncle Teddy's house. I don't know why we say Uncle Teddy, but Theodore Roosevelt, his home there, um, he's, uh, he's just trying to do a photo op. And so he has this delegation that comes in. He says, ah, gentlemen, come down to the barn. We'll talk while I do some work. At the barn, Roosevelt picked up a pitchfork, and then he looks around for some hay. Uh, John, where's the hay? He calls to his son. Sorry, sir. I ain't had enough time to toss it back down after you pitched it up wondering the Iowa folks were here. He's just doing it for a photo op, right? Uh, just throwing this as a straw man, creating a straw man. This is who I am, really, I promise. All of us fall short. All of us fall short. And because of that, what does he say? None of us will escape. Do you think that you who are doing the same types of things will escape? So I would encourage you to do this today if you consider yourself to be extremely moral. Go back through. So what's happened is he's, he's started chapter 1 with doing these things like rebellion against God, hating God, and, and we kind of feel like, no, I, kind of, I love God. I want to pursue Him. But then he ends with all these very practical points. And all of us who have to say, man, I fall short in that area. And so he's, he's really giving us, he's not letting us run. You cannot escape the judgment of God. You have to have Jesus judged in your place. That word, escape the judgment of God, is a very picturesque term. You get the idea of running from God and His judgment. The idea of running out of Sodom and Gomorrah like Lot. The idea of running from God and like Adam and Eve in the garden trying to hide. There is no way to hide from God. After that, then comes the judgment. You can run, but God will cut you down. God will judge you. Revelation 20, I saw a great white throne in Him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. There's no place to hide. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened. Here's the book. Here's the grades. 
I was really moral, God. All of heaven and earth fled away. How do you think you can stand? A moralist has no leg to stand on before the judgment of God. Another book opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things that were written in the book according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Everyone is being judged. Everyone according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the life book, was thrown into the lake of fire. The Lamb's book of life. What we need to make sure to do is have... Written in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus paid it all. Not of works that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. No one, no one can be good enough. Jesus said, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. No one can be Baptist enough. No one can be Protestant enough. No one can be Catholic enough. No one can be Muslim enough. No one can be Buddhist enough. It's not about religion. It's about God sending His Son Jesus in our place. And He says, this is my classroom. I make the rules. And here's your one exception. You don't deserve it. But in my mercy, I give you this this exception. Jesus' grades can go to your account if you trust and ask. And then you're excused. Without that, none of you are excused. I'm not excused. All the world has become guilty before God. Whether very sinful or very moral, all of us fall short of the glory of God. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I just let me encourage you to come before the Lord and ask Him. You may look around and say, man, that person's 22 grade scale and I'm up to 33. It's 100%, 85 years, however you live, 100%. If you ever disobeyed your parents, that was mentioned in Romans 1. Disobedient to parents. If you disobeyed your parents, you fall short of the glory of God. You've scored less than perfect on your test. But the amazing thing is the gospel, that Jesus was perfect. He was well pleased. The Father was well pleased with Him. And it was the Father's good will to... Punish Him in our place. Amazing, amazing mercy. I just encourage you to open your eyes to that truth and embrace it. You don't have to do a bunch of works or make a big scene. You just have to say, God, I believe this. I believe this message from this book, this holy book, that Your Son has taken my place. Please forgive me of all my transgressions, past, present, and future. I turn to Him today. You would pray that just like that publican. You would go home justified. Just like that tax collector. You would go home declared to be right with God. All of your bad marks are gone. All of Jesus' perfection is placed on your account. Run to Christ now. Be standing in the back in a few moments to pray. If you would like to pray with someone. Let me encourage you, though, to take this moment to pray. Have about 90 seconds quiet. Hopefully you get more than 90 seconds of quiet in your week. But take this quiet to come to the Lord and thank Him for judging Jesus in your place.